This is Forest Fireside Chats, a podcast created by Cora Martin with special support from Meredith Preeve. Keep listening to gain a new outlook on U.S. environmentalism that we hope will expand, uplift, and brighten the national movement towards sustainability. Thanks for joining for another episode of Forest Fireside Chats. I know it's been two months since I posted an episode, and I want to explain why. I, my roommate and I were actually, we actually had a break-in. It was in the middle of the night, and we were both there, and we know it was a break-in because we checked all of the, like, windows and doors and everything, and we saw fingerprints all over our basement windows like fresh fingerprints we we noticed that the back door was unlocked and one of the windows was unlocked so we assumed someone came through that one unlocked window and then left through the basement back door so one of the things that was stolen was my computer with one of my recordings on it for the episode and i was very disheartened and just kind of decided i'm not going to freak out about this and try to re-record in time to get this episode out. So, yeah, it's been two months since the last the last FFC. And, and I think what kind of came out of this is realizing that having two months to work on each episode is a lot easier on Meredith and I. As some of you know, FFC used to be a group of four, now it's just a group of two. And so that's the same amount of work with just half the amount of help. So I think what we've decided and what I'm gonna what I think will improve episode quality will be doing an episode every two months. I'm really sorry about that for people that look forward to hearing monthly episodes. I don't think this will be this way forever. I, I'm I have a full-time job in school, so maybe once I finish school I'll have more time to focus on this podcast. Right now it's mostly just a hobby and something fun to do and have in my life but yeah stay tuned for now we're going to do every two months subject to change speaking of meredith i think i'm going to have her come on the podcast next episode to introduce her i really want her to be there for introductions the way elsa used to be she's wonderful she's super smart and one of the most impressive and cool environmentalists i know and i know you all are going to love her So yeah, I will make sure to have her come on for a few minutes at the beginning of the episode in two months. And yeah, that's that's pretty much it. Again, sorry for this long wait without much explanation. But as you can imagine, a break-in was very discombobulating and I haven't recovered since. Um, No, I have, I have, I have. It It wasn't bad or traumatic. All right, well, I really hope you all enjoy this episode and uh, get something out of it. We were able to interview a program officer at the United States Institute of Peace, and I also made the sustainability story of this week about solar, solar power, and how homeowners can install solar, solar energy in their homes. So I hope that's helpful and interesting and beneficial to all. Uh, As always, let me know if you have any ideas for episodes or people I can speak to. You can email us at forestfiresidechats at gmail.com. All right, 
enjoy the episode. Thank you so much. Bye. Today we are speaking with someone that I actually in the past year uh, was lucky enough to meet through a mentorship program hosted at my university, George Washington. I was paired with a program officer at the United States Institute of Peace and was really lucky to get to talk to her about peace building and specifically environmental peace building for a year. And she has generously agreed to come onto the podcast and speak with you all about what she does, which is so interesting and so exciting. And I'm so excited for you all to hear it. But first, I'm going to explain a little bit about her background. So Jill Baggerman is a program officer at the United States Institute of Peace. Her research focuses on the intersection of water, peace, inclusiveness, and she has worked in post-conflict settings to support local reconciliation in South Sudan, Uganda, Bihar, India, Liberia, and Azerbaijan. Given her past experience in national water policy and transboundary water cooperation, as well as her current role supporting peace processes at USIP, we have invited her today to discuss USIP's work in environmental peace building more broadly. As a program officer, she supports program design, monitoring, evaluation, learning, and research across USIP centers, with a current focus on monitoring, evaluation, and learning for the Middle East and North Africa region, trust building dialogues, policy engagement, and peace processes related to the climate and the environment. So Jill, I'll start off just more about your background. You have a master's in development, sustainability, and peace from the United Nations University, and a second master's in global policy studies from the University of Texas, both related to conflict, water issues, and peace. Can you explain from how you got involved with water conflict research to where you are now in your research on water issues? Hi, Cora. Yes, of course. And uh, first off, it is good to be speaking with you. I am so grateful that we were matched together in that uh, mentorship program and um, really enjoy getting to communicate with you still because you are just incredible and I, I enjoy learning with you. So yeah, getting to your question, um, to answer about my master's, I, I need to briefly step back um, kind of two or three steps. So before I got my master's, I was studying cultural anthropology at the University of Texas. And I had picked anthropology, especially because I really liked the, the ways that my like other friends who were studying anthropology were able to link individual experiences with more of the like systems and institutions that are, you know, inherently involved with our individual experiences. And from that, or kind of during that time, I took a break um, from school for several years to um, first go live in Uganda for a while doing um, some work with a kind of a development and peace building organization in Gulu, Uganda. And there, it was two years after their civil war had officially ended, but violence was still pretty high. And so I got to both apply my anthropology degree and also start thinking some pretty tough questions about what all of, like how all of these pieces of individual suffering link to wider processes and what can be done um, to to really solve some of the underlying issues rather than just kind of continually apply band-aids to, to these systematic challenges. 
And that in turn led me to, to do some other like travels and volunteer work, especially in India and a few other places to try to narrow down, like, what exactly am I going to be focusing on? And all of those things culminated to me um, picking to focus on uh, water, peace, and inclusiveness, because I think peace building is a really wonderful opportunity to kind of rebuild some of the power relations that are inherent to the conflict and, and rebuild them in a more equitable way. And um, the water sector is a wonderful entry point for that because that inherently connects the, the individuals uh, on through the government systems, including, you know, it's often, you know, stereotypically at least, um, but in reality, it is often women and children who are the direct water managers going to collect the water for their community's use. Yet um, they're not always on the the water committees or or the you know on up through the national level water management decision making processes. And so thinking about water and peace together um, is a really unique way to start finding ways to address the power relationships with existing networks and um, existing expertise on. Uh, on the water sector, and then start using those to address the the wider underlying peace building challenges. So with my first master's, I looked at all of those dynamics, specifically in South Sudan's situation, trying to understand how water-related decision-making processes impacted the peace process, looking at a few um, specific kind of water committees um, that were on the local level and how those intersected with both the the warlords and other kinds of situations um, that have happened on more regional levels on through what was trying to happen nationally out of Juba. And then in my second master's, um, which I had spent some time working and going back and forth between the peace building and the water sector in between there, but my second master's was looking specifically at uh, water policies in fragile settings. So I did, for instance, a uh, research initiative with the Strauss Center during my master's looking at the uh, the water policies in places like Iraq and Syria, and how those water policies continued to, I guess, like engage with some of the marginalization processes that were a part of the conflict, yet how they could also be used, like how more efficient policies and more power conscious policies could start to address um, the conflict in a more equitable way and ensure the human right to water in practical terms. And so all of those things <laughs> come back to, to get to the end of your question of where I am now in my research uh, and work. I'm still really, really interested in these um, these connection points between how peace and water interact in people's daily lives and interact in the systems and, and policies and programs that, that they operate within. And so I'm sure we'll get to this soon in the interview, but um, some of the things that I'm working on now include trying to, to, to ensure that these like theoretical kinds of linkages are being taken into account directly into our programs moving forward. Yeah, I mean, 
you have the educational background and that actual practical experience. So I, I think that is a really interesting place for you to be in trying to make sure that all this research is being like input into programming. Great. Okay. Well, let's talk about, let's talk about your work at the United States Institute of Peace. I, I know that you work closely with teams and programs across the Institute. Uh, could you talk about what USIP does for environmental conflict and peace building? Sure. And so, yeah, as you mentioned, my insight on this really comes from being on the learning evaluation and research team, which is a pretty unique team in, kind of across the board of what USIP does. As you mentioned in, in my bio, the, um, the learning evaluation research team kind of partners with all of the other regional and thematic teams of the Institute, especially at key kind of moments in their project and program, uh, especially when they are designing an intervention. Uh, we support them and give them guidance and materials as well as you know hands-on like collaboration for making a program and project design. And then again, to make their monitoring and evaluation plan, tracking their indicators and some, depending on the team's capacity, some like tools and uh, the specific monitoring tracking systems that they'll be using for, during project implementation. And then we often step in if there is any major challenge, including if the conflict uh, takes a sudden turn and we need to like readjust some of the program's goals to the new situation. And therefore, also the monitoring plan needs to be adapted. And so specifically on the kind of climate and environment work, um, the forefront of all of that is my colleagues on our climate, environment, and conflict team. And they are a very small and new team, um, just started in 2020. They are doing lots of work, even with being new on um, the policy and kind of intergovernmental level. Um, as well as with other agencies across the U.S. government, um, especially helping AFRICOM and other like, U.S. agencies more strategically engage with the environment and thinking through the other challenges that conflict situations will inevitably encounter with climate change and how those other agencies may need to address because of that. And so I've worked with them on some of their workshops, on some of their uh, research, to to think through how to more effectively kind of work in light of conflict and climate change. And then other examples are with the regional centers and those, especially because some of our regional centers are more established, have been around for a much longer time. Um, so I often kind of, it's a triangle of my team working with the climate environment and conflict team and those regional teams. But together, we have, yeah, worked on numerous new projects. And so a few examples that I might highlight, I've worked closely with our Tunisia team, which has many longstanding peace building projects um, and programs in, in Tunisia. And one of their relatively newer ones is a project with USAID looking at uh, local governance and how it is set up to adapt to climate change. And so thinking through, especially on kind of how to help Tunisian governments from the local to the national level incorporate some of the environmental challenges that they face. Um, and Tunisia is an interesting case for that because um, as is the case with many climate change impacts, 
those impacts are happening on the local level. And that's also where some of the like climate expertise is in terms of how to address the environmental degradation problems and how to kind of adapt to that um, when the, the pumping and other things is going to have to continue and how to do that in environmentally um, non-damaging ways. But a lot of the jurisdiction and authority for doing those interventions happen at the national level. And so there, you know, climate change adaptation in Tunisia is very much a governance problem. And so we, I've been working with the Tunisia team to, to kind of design that project and figure out where we're going to test some of these new governance um, goals that we're having to do and then start rolling that out. And so right now they're, they're getting set up and, and hopefully we'll be in the next few months, I could even give a little bit of an update with um, how that's going and some of the things and, and initiatives that they're starting to do. Another example is uh, with our rock team. Um, they are doing ongoing research to try to identify entry points for how we can continue some of our peace building efforts as water stress continues. Huge congratulations to my Iraq team colleagues because they have a vast network across Iraq that they've been able to maintain even in some of the most conflict and climate affected locations like Sinjar. And so part of my role is being um, a thought partner and kind of a design partner with them as they think through how to incorporate some of the ongoing research that they're doing with their existing networks and how we might see what USIP's value add can be to kind of use existing dialogues and existing programs to address climate change. And then other work is very much still in the early design stages. For instance, recently had conversations with USIP's Center for Russia and Europe uh, to discuss what USIP might do to support Ukraine and Zelensky's 10-point peace plan, especially because many of those three particular of those points relate to water or other environmental issues. And so thinking through how, practically speaking, can we try to like move forward those as peace initiatives, even though they're rather technical in nature. Great. Okay, remind me to ask you to update me on that Tunisia program. That sounds very interesting. Will do. Yeah, this is awesome. Yeah, I, I studied war and environmental stress in post-war like rebuilding settings and it is like so important to consider environment consider water in those like post-conflict peace settings so I think especially like in Ukraine that's going to be super fascinating work that I'm excited to hear about uh I want to talk about a USIP request for a proposal that I just recently saw that you posted on LinkedIn you called it the testing the theory, how and why data sharing leads to trust building and water cooperation and diplomacy. Can you talk about this project and your involvement in it and any kind of theories or hopes you have for the study related to data sharing and for water cooperation? Glad to. Yes, this is a project that is near and dear to my heart. It is one that um, is directly housed within my team, although we're working with other teams too. And we have partnered with UNESCO IHE Delft, and especially uh, Bota Sharipova and Jennifer Siring at UNESCO IHE. And then they have a partner at Alto University, Marco Kneskvin, 
apologies, friends, if I have pronounced any of your names incorrectly. And so with this research, we are really trying to understand how data sharing and trust building are linked because often in water cooperation processes, that's one of the initial steps and, and put forward as uh, as if it is this you know golden tool um, to try to achieve trust building. But we really want to test that and, and understand that there's a lot of assumptions that we have baked into that. Um, data sharing is not politically neutral. There's a lot of national security implications that go into sharing data and that go into you know, whether or not different nations like trust the data that they are getting from their counterparts on the other side, as well as lots of pieces of like when that data is shared, whether it's on an annual basis or a seasonal or weekly basis, um, or whether it's shared after the fact and the, the river conditions or, or groundwater conditions may have changed since it was communicated. And so we really want to dive into all of those dynamics and understand when data sharing does lead to better international relations and, and better trust outcomes. Uh, why was that? Um, what specific factors, whether relational or technical, was a part of that formula or part of contributing to the, those trust outcomes, as well as you know, when data is shared, but trust is still really low, um, what is that data sharing mechanism doing in those cases and how could it be improved to have better trust and peace related outcomes? And so with this research, uh, which is just beginning, Boda is, I believe even at this moment, doing some field research in the Sava and Sindaria basins. Uh, which are really great comparative case studies because they have a lot of similar dynamics and kind of control variables that we can think through. But then there's also a lot, a lot of really complicated and sensitive conflict dynamics that, that have happened in their past too. And so we are looking at, yeah, just the role that data sharing did and didn't do and trying to isolate some of the other variables that contributed to trust building or the lack of trust building. And with that, come January, we're going to have a workshop with multiple other water basins. We're still kind of working out the details of what basins will be included in this workshop, but working with officials and experts to kind of associate the findings that we have from the Sava and Sundaria basins with those other transboundary waters and think through like what are some of the findings that might be more generally applicable and what are ways that we can better leverage data sharing processes so that yeah so that we have better outcomes moving forward and by better outcomes I guess I mean a more sound theory of change going into it and one that is still very conscious of the assumptions that will inevitably be a part of this conversation, but but one that we can at least better dive into those assumptions or at least be conscious of how we can overcome some of the challenges that those assumptions have. Great. So zooming out from your experience across the peace and water sectors, could you provide some insights into how data and research findings are applied practically to shape policies and interventions aimed at addressing environmental conflicts and promoting peace, and especially in the context of water-related issues. 
Yeah, thank you for this question. So I'm going to first preempt that I'm speaking um, outside of my role as USIP program officer and thinking a little bit more generally and uh, about some of the, the conversations that I've been in, both when I was in the water sector and trying to help them understand, help my colleagues in the water sector understand some of the challenges that they were facing with this qualitative information, including in um, conflict or other more sensitive areas as well as the times that I was more of the water person in the peace building sectors trying to help my colleagues understand some of the the more quantitative information that they were receiving from from communities. I would say that kind of the way that data is used in in both sectors um, could in some ways be combined into three different categories. One is when when people are in a bombardment of information. Um, one is when people are in a really like dearth of information, either because things have changed. And the other is when there is lots of disparate and, and disconnected information sources, and it's hard to kind of connect the dots and see where things are coming in. And so one thing that, that I am really passionate about um, in all three of those scenarios is that when we do a conflict analysis, it is both gathering information about the the context and it is being really conscious of what questions you cannot answer with the data that you have. And like what is, in research terms, you would say what is outside the scope of the research. But really from a practical standpoint, I would also say what is a still uncertain dynamic that you need to be conscious of as you're designing your program and intervention. As you apply, or as teams might consider applying the, the data and research findings to their interventions, I think in situations where they are bombarded with data, uh, which is coming back to USIP's case, like that's often where my colleagues are, are kind of dealing with, that they are getting information from the news and from research and from their partners and from their colleagues and friends and family members because they're often based in the conflict affected situations. And so they're really trying to sift through amidst all of that information, like where are people's interests and where can solutions be identified even with those interests and biases going into the equation. And so I often help them think through like what kinds of conflict analysis tools might help prioritize some of the, the information that they're getting and, and think through how they can, can really target those priorities, even with the, the range of other issues that, that need to be addressed. So what kind of tools do you present to people in, when they are faced with that type of challenge? Great question. Thank you for that. So one of the tools that has been really effective for teams and, and like even in very, very complicated situations like our Libya team, where they are constantly having to, to sift through, you know, a barrage of information that, that are coming from all different kinds of angles, uh, formally and informally. Um, one of the tools that, that the LER team has given them is, we call it pause and learn plus. And they could also be called an after action, um, but there's some pieces there that, that make that term a little bit complicated. But they are essentially a light touch evaluation method where we get teams to um, kind of 
go through what they know and go through kind of all of the different challenges that they've been facing and pause and really reflect on what some of the like underlying patterns might be with those um with those data and with uh and with the challenges that they're trying to address and then sift through and dividing out like what are the like really important ongoing questions that they need to go out and answer what are the questions that are kind of just looming in the context they need to have in their mind are open questions but they don't necessarily need to answer it to design their intervention and then like looking forward and the kind of the learning or the the action side of that where are the stakeholders or where are the issues where they might like move forward even with the ongoing questions where are the patterns pointing them to go and get those answers to their questions like what are their partners that seem to be either holding them up or seem to be where the relationship is just really critical to to double down and and build up and where are the issues that um, might be the the entry points either because they're relatively less sensitive in the new dynamic or because they are the core of the problem and need to be addressed as soon as possible and so those pause and learn strategy sessions are, or pause and learn plus sessions have been really beneficial, especially in those bombardment of information um, times. Um, and they've also been used like, in instances of staff turnover when somebody is about to leave and yet there's a lot going on to kind of download a lot of the information that they have to to figure out how to cover for them or, or find their um, th their new point person. Um, but they have especially been used in in some of the ongoing projects and programs that we have. So another piece of of zooming out and thinking about um, like how data are applied to shape policies and interventions, um, I want to give yet another shout out to my rock team. Um, they have some great uh, longitudinal and spatial data um, that's part of what we call our conflict and stabilization monitoring framework. And these are household level surveys on um, conflict, security, and, and several other pieces connected to Iraq's uh, ongoing uh, instability. But thinking through at the very, very local levels, what is happening? And, and then given that information, how do we adjust our policies and, and programs? And earlier this year, I worked with them to, to add a climate change module to those surveys. And so everyone, it's you know publicly information now. Um, the last wave has been published on USIP's website, and you can go in and use that data um, that again is happening like on the district level to to understand how conflict and climate might be connected in Iraq's case. And teams that are working in Iraq, including the Iraq team, um, can try to incorporate that data into their their policies and their interventions. We at USAP are still trying to figure out exactly how we're going to do that. And, and that will be combined with the ongoing research that we're doing with another local Iraqi organization to design our, our interventions. And so more to come on that, but we're thinking really critically about how 
these technical data combine with people's lived experiences and, and being conscious of both sides of that when we design our, our peace building interventions. Lovely. Well, that's all I have for you, Jill. Thank you so much again for being here. You have such a rich background and you're doing such interesting work, especially to me. Environmental peace building is an amazing field. Oh, yeah. And thank you just so much for being so generous with your knowledge and time. And thank you, Cora. I am always impressed by what you're doing, and I'm, I'm thrilled that I get to be a, one of the episode numbers in your really, really fascinating podcast. So thank you for this opportunity. Okay, so this sustainability story is actually going to be more of like a how-to for you all, the audience homeowners, anyone interested in implementing solar into their homes or into their lives. I wanted to talk about this because I've recently been working with an organization, a nonprofit foundation that uh, installs solar projects all around the state of Wisconsin. Uh, it's, It's kind of opened my eyes into the ease and accessibility that I think a lot of solar organizations are creating for homeowners and just everyday people to have solar implemented in their homes and businesses. So let's just start off by talking about like how does solar work? There's two primary technologies that the one that you're probably most familiar with and can visualize are the photovoltaics, the PV, and these are panels that can be installed on like rooftops or fields the technology behind this is basically just photons or particles of light are absorbed by the cells in the panel, which create an electric field across the panels, and and this will cause electricity to flow. The other technology is concentrating solar power, or CSP. It's used for very large power plants, and it's not something that you all would be interested in. It's not for residential use. So the first question you might ask is, Would it be possible for me to have PV solar in my home? The first thing to consider is whether you have a lot of tree cover over your roof. Rooftops with a lot of tree cover would not be good candidates for solar energy. But beyond that, the shape of your roof is also important. There are some like very specific factors to consider related to your roof, including like solar panels work best on south facing roofs. If perhaps your home is not suitable for solar, It'd be a good idea, I think, to look up community solar options or even get together a group of people or some type of community to consider having a community solar option because multiple people can benefit from a single like shared solar array, which can be installed on or off-site. If you know of a lot of people in your neighborhood that are environmentally conscious and interested in solar, it wouldn't hurt to do more research on community-based solutions for solar panels. If you have decided that you are interested in going solar, the first thing you can do is look up whether there's any pre-screened solar providers in your area. This resource will allow an expert to come and determine if your roof is suitable for solar and provide you with a quote, how much money it will cost to install and function. That just will take a basic internet search with your location and you're definitely going to have a lot of options to choose from. Something that I've thought about, because I 
kind of am convinced that I can do anything and learn anything <laughs> is can I install solar myself? But from the research that I've done, I would argue that it really is best to do your solar through a professional service that has certification and can really like produce high quality solar panels. I still, though, I'm crazy and I want in the next at least year to learn how to make a phone charger that's solar, solar powered. I've done a little research on that and I'm going to try it. So I will keep you all updated on how that goes. So when we think about energy costs, I think a lot of people think that installing solar will help them save money. But this really depends on how much electricity you consume now and the size of your solar system that you install, whether you actually own your system or you, you rent it, and how much power you're able to generate from the given specifications of your roof, how much sunlight it can absorb. But I will say that in many cities, solar energy is one of the cheapest options for day-to-day -day electricity sold by local utility services. And the cost of going solar has dropped every year since 2009, which it will just continue to decline year after year. And that doesn't just include like installation, that also includes permitting and inspection and all of those like little costs associated with solar. If you're worried about the initial costs of solar, there's a lot of options provided by the government and, and loan companies to get funding to install. If you really want to buy your solar energy system, you can get solar loans to lower all the upfront costs of the system. And then paying that back, like the monthly loan payments to cover that over time, are typically smaller than any energy bill. So you can even save money from the start compared to what you're already paying now. The government in some states and cities offers subsidized solar energy loans to make solar even more affordable. This is actually really cool. New homeowners can add solar as part of their mortgage with loans from the Federal Housing Administration and Fannie Mae. There's also, of course, a lot of tax breaks associated with buying a solar energy system. You can get the Solar Investment Tax Credit, or the ITC, and just something a little something about that is that in December 2020, Congress passed an extension of the ITC, which provides a 22% tax credit for systems installed in 2023. The credit expires in 2024, which is coming up, but Congress is definitely going to renew it. What I would suggest is really just do your research on all of the state incentives in your state and all the tax breaks that can help you go solar because there's so much out there. Like this organization that I worked for this past semester is basically installing systems for people for no profit. There's got to be, I'm sure, they, they operate in only one state, but I'm sure they've there's opportunities like that across the entire country. Solar can improve the quality of your home. A lot of people view solar as an upgrade, just like a finished basement or a, a nice new kitchen. And so this is something to consider if you don't plan on staying in your home forever. Solar energy is very safe. All solar panels meet international inspection and testing standards and if you do it right and get a professional to install and help you through the process, it, it's completely safe. There's a lot of misinformation, I think, about renewable energy that is fueled by the oil and gas industry. So yeah, there's a lot more I could talk about. There's a lot of environmental benefits of solar, obviously. Reducing your emissions and pollutants into the environment, into the atmosphere. 
are obviously incredibly important, especially I, I, a lot of people argue that individuals shouldn't be responsible for doing that. But I am such a staunch supporter of doing everything you can if you have the money to reduce your environmental footprint. If any of you have any questions or would like me to send you some resources, please email forestfiresidechats at gmail.com and I'd be happy to talk to you more about it or send you some resources. I'm really passionate about this and I'm hoping one day when I have money, which I don't right now, that I will be able to install solar in my home. Okay, well, thank you all so much for listening and, and I hope you got something out of this episode. If you want some of this, what I've kind of said on paper, I'm sure we will provide some of this information in our monthly newsletter, which all of you should sign up for. You can go to our Instagram, Forest Fireside Chats, and click the link in our bio to sign up. All right, that is all for this episode. I really enjoyed this one. Jill is such a wonderful, wonderful person, and... I'm so lucky that I was introduced to her through GW. I'm excited to see kind of what she gets involved with in the rest of her career. I know she has a lot of good things in the works. And yeah, I hope you all enjoyed hearing about some of her interests and her work at USIP. As always, let me know how you liked the episode and give me any advice if you have any or any topic ideas or especially any people that you think would like to talk on the podcast. We try to shine a light on environmental defenders that have big flashy jobs and also the kind of behind the scenes people that you don't often hear about. So yeah, please, please share this podcast with some of your environmental friends and ask them if they would be interested in speaking. Again, uh, we're not going to have another episode until the end of January, probably early February, uh, but that is subject to change. I really enjoy doing this and I want to keep doing it. So I am just going to try to have a little grace with myself and push a little less on that month deadline that I initially gave myself. But again, after I graduate, things will probably, probably change again. Okay, well, have a really great two months and enjoy the holidays. Get some rest, spend time with family, and I will see you all in two months. Okay.